Indiana Bible College is committed to training tomorrow's apostolic ministers today. And this is the Indiana Bible College podcast. Today we welcome Reverend Andrew Herbst, who preached this message in IBC Chapel entitled Your Prophetic Responsibility. Brother Herbst is someone who has given himself to learning and reading, and he graduated from the University of Mankato, Minnesota with a degree in history. In fact, he was pastored there by Reverend Jeremy Cox, our guest for Theology Conference. For the last number of years, Brother Herbst has taught faithfully at Calvary Christian School, and he's also now an instructor here at Indiana Bible College. Let's get right to this message from Brother Andrew Herbst. You know, we get to work with these people that we consider heroes, and many of these people are my heroes as well. Give honor to Brother Galleon and Pastor Carson. Amen. And to you guys, I mean, it takes a lot to leave home, come to pursue your calling. You guys did wonderful. The Spirit of the Lord moved in, in IBC Live. Amen. It is a sacrifice to be here, and I give you honor for that. Amen. Second Chronicles 7.14, this is one we all probably could quote. If my people, which are called by my name, somebody say the name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, this is God talking, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Amen. You may be seated. To, to start this off, there were just two very brief stories I would like to share with you that have really made me ponder a few things. And the, the first, these are very brief, but the first story involves that rotten king of England, King John of Robin Hood fame. And if you know anything about King John, he, he loved to take bribes and take gifts if it suited his purpose and in return for favors, but he didn't actually always follow through with these favors. And there's one story about King John sitting up on his throne and this lowly priest had fallen to his knees begging in a request for King John. And uh, if you had something to give, King John had an ear to give you back, but in this case, this priest really didn't have anything to offer except for his, his pleas. King John simply got off of his throne, went and kneeled down beside the priest and in a very condescending whisper, Sister Jocelyn, he said, see, I can get on my knees too. But the second story takes place a thousand years even before King John to the Emperor Hadrian. The ancient Roman emperor was very restless in his traveling. He was one of the most traveled Roman emperors in his administrative function. And he would go out and really took it upon himself to inspect the provinces, make sure the empire was running well. But in one story, he's, he's traveling around and this woman is following him, Brother Isaac, and pestering him, asking for a request. And he finally said, I don't have time for you today, and turned around and kept walking. But Brother Liam, she yelled out, then stop being emperor. To which he turned, got off his horse, and went and listened to what she had to say. Now, both of these stories are examples of, well, you and I, we're, we're, not, we're not kings and emperors, but we have been called into God's service we have been called into a role of the servant of the kingdom. And these stories have just made me think a little bit, what is my responsibility as a minister? 
as a servant? What, how am I supposed to work inside of God's kingdom? So I felt this from the Lord today to speak on your prophetic responsibility. Your prophetic responsibility. Lord God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for this chapel service, for the worship that has already been lifted up to you. I just pray that you would touch this word, that it would go and touch and encourage, and we'll give you all the glory, because that's what we're here to do. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll just go with me on a little bit of a journey, we're just going to walk a little bit through the Old Testament, and we're going to get to somewhere, Brother Josh, that I think is uh, God is going to help us. And, and let's start in Egypt. This is a good starting place in Egypt. We know the children of Israel were there for 400 years in slavery and bondage. <clears throat> But there was a command that went out from the Lord to Pharaoh. What was that command? Let my people go that they may serve me. The intention was not just liberty and then just leaving the people in the wilderness, but there was, there was an invitation to relationship. There was an intention that I'm going to establish my covenant with my people, Israel. But in Exodus 5, what is Pharaoh's response? The command is, let my people go. I am Yahweh. I'm the Lord. Let my people go. But Exodus 5.2, what is Pharaoh's response? Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I know not the Lord, neither will I obey. People talk about Pharaoh's heart being hardened, but this right here is an indication of what will come. He's going to harden his heart, and he will reject the Lord first. But he asked that question, who is the Lord? Now, what kind of question is that? Because you know what? If you want to know, he will show himself to you. And what do we know from these, these stories of the plagues and these things? God is showing himself. Pharaoh, you asked, who am I? I will show you. I will reveal myself to you. And in Exodus 12, 12, God says, I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. And we know this. I love this fact that, you know, God has a history of demolishing false gods. Whether it's Dagon or whether it's this scenario where you have the sun god Ra, right? And he's supposed to bring light and, and sunshine and, and, and growth to the, to the empire of Egypt. But you know that there's this darkness that came over the land. Anybody remember the darkness? The, the Bible says it was so dark you could feel the darkness. Now, I've never been in that but God was making a point. Ra is one of your greatest gods. Well, here, let me show you how powerful he actually is. The, the various plagues, you could look at the gods of fertility or the gods of health, even gods that are associated with the Nile. Historians call the Nile the life source of Egypt. If you don't have Nile, you don't have an Egypt. Oh, and what happened to the Nile? Just turned to blood. And then eventually the last plague was directed at the only God that the, Pharaoh, or the, excuse me, that the Egyptians could actually interact with, and that is, of course, Pharaoh. And that death of the firstborn son showed that this so-called God of Egypt cannot even protect his own offspring who would eventually become God himself. Yahweh is saying, there is no other God but me. There is no other living God. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Amen? Who is the Lord? He's the one that brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Egypt's gods, I, Egypt's gods could not keep Israel in. 
but you have this God of Israel that is bringing the people out of Egypt to bring them in to something better because he brought us out of darkness, but he didn't just leave us somewhere. He brought us into his marvelous light. He has a promise that he set forward and God is faithful to keep his word. He is faithful. And when they cross that Red Sea, there's this song of praise uh, that God is leading in Exodus 15, 13, that God is leading his redeemed people towards his holy habitation. Leviticus says that he will tabernacle in the midst of his people because it's about relationship. The tabernacle and the various commandments are given. The tabernacle is set up. And this was a place, Brother Caleb, where God was supposed to meet his people. The sacrifices and all these things that were set up in worship, in, in, in this covenant law that was established. If we go to Leviticus 8 and 9, if you were to read those two chapters, there are about 15 times, Brother Layton, where it says something along the lines of, Moses and Aaron obeyed the word of the Lord. There's obedience attached to this worship. Those chapters are about the, the, the priesthood being ordained and, and these sacrifices are set up. And I was so thankful for the first song they started to sing because if we take a look at Leviticus 9.24, after Moses and Aaron performed these sacrifices, it says, and there came a fire. Somebody say a fire. There came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat. And when all the people saw this, they shouted and they fell on their faces. But they didn't fall in their fa on their faces in fear or terror. It was more like awe. Or maybe what we could say, worship. Because worship is the proper response to God's glory and God's holiness. So when we say we are worshiping, it's more than just what we do when we get together to sing. But worship is a response to who God is and what he has done. And Israel falls down at the fire coming and there's worship that's lifted up to the Lord. Why? Because when you obey the covenant, you bring God's glory into the camp. You bring the fire into the camp. And we don't have time to talk about it, but three verses later, fire comes out from the Lord to destroy. Because when you mess with God's holiness, that's not okay. There's divine approval in Leviticus 9, affirmation that you are my people and I am your God. We go forward a little bit to such a beautiful passage of scripture in Numbers chapter six, the, the high priestly prayer. Let's read, let's start reading verse 24. The Lord, Yahweh, shall bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face, this is the, the priest praying over the nation of Israel, make Yahweh's face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance, his, his face upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel and I will bless them. Now, Brother Kilman, this is one of those passages where I feel like you, you can't really just skip over this one really quickly, but that we can't dive into everything of how beautiful and, and how wonderful this passage is. But this is what we can say very quickly, is that obedience to the covenant bring God's face and his favor upon you. 
Blessings that can only come when obedience is in its proper place. When we're walking with the Lord, Brother Luke, that is when his face, his favor shall shine, excuse me, upon us. And there's this beautiful phrase here, they shall put my name upon the children of Israel. Israel being called by God's name. Now in ancient history, where the name of a God was proclaimed or, or called, whatever, whether it's a building or a person or a group of people, whatever, wherever the name of God or, or, or the false gods even were called, that is where that God would dwell. That's where God's presence would come. That's where he would be. Why? Because he owns them. He's redeemed the people. He's called them by the name. Because when you say the name, you're not just saying words. You're saying who is this and what have they done? So when you say Yahweh's name is called over the people, you're talking about the God, the creator. Who is he? He's the creator. What has he done? He's redeemed us. He's brought us out of Egypt. So we're saying who he is and what he's done. Now let's just take a pause for a second. There's a reason why we're baptizing in the name of Jesus. Because when you get baptized in the name of Jesus, yes, we, 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 we know it's for remission of sin, but there's another part to that. It's covenant. It's the name being called over. We're saying, who is this? It's God in the flesh. Well, what has he done? He's redeemed us on the cross. So we gotta make sure we get the name right. God even goes further in Deuteronomy and says, I'm gonna choose a place to put my name. God says, when you get to that promised land, you destroy all the idols and their names out of those places, Deuteronomy 12. But you shall not do so to the Lord. Why? Because I'm gonna choose a place to put my name there. Now, a little bit of a preview. That's Jerusalem. Because something, Brother Zachary, is gonna be built in Jerusalem where God's name will be called, and that will be a place of access to God's presence. That'll be a place where God will dwell with his people. That is a very special place. And, and so there are all of these issues of the name. Are we doing okay? We're just kind of walking through a little bit. I hope you're with me. If we are a people, or Israel in this case, if they are a people of the name, they must live a life that reflects the character of that name. We're talking about all the blessings of the covenant, Brother King. We're talking about all these things that God said, I'll give you peace, I'll give you power, I'll give you anointing, I'll give you uh, the, 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 uh, the blessings of the covenant, the, the way to live and, and only the way to live if you are in covenant, these, these gracious blessings. But there are covenant blessings, but there are also covenant curses. There are stipulations laid out, and if you want to study this in more full detail, I would encourage you to read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28, because there's blessings for obedience. We've looked at that, but there is cursing for disobedience. God says, if you turn away from me and you start worshiping other gods, I'll send pestilence into your land. I'll send invading armies into your land. So when you read the book of Judges, should they have been surprised? No. Because those are promises. And Brother Kilman, you've said it. If God is faithful in his blessings, he will be faithful in his cursing. No matter what, God can like not be faithful. 
He's gonna be faithful to the covenant. He says, there will be a tax from other nations. Oh, and this is an interesting verse in Deuteronomy. He says, the Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust. Somebody say, no rain. There are even gonna be plagues that are reminiscent of Egypt in that same chapter, Deuteronomy 28. He says, I will bring upon thee all the diseases of the Egyptians. Israel will be scattered and destroyed if this disobedience continues. Why? Because if you want to act like Egypt, I'll treat you like Egypt. We know all the elements of the comparisons as well with the Canaanites. You drive out the Canaanites. But if you start acting like the Canaanites, I will treat you the same way I will drive you out. Because this is not about you, Israel. This is about my relationship, my covenant. I am the almighty God. But thankfully, Leviticus 26 lays out at the end of this chapter, Moses pens words like this, responsibility. That if you accept your sin, even in the midst of all these things get so crazy, oh, oh, and you know there's verses about cannibalism in the Bible, like if you continue down these things, I don't want you to do this, God says, but you will eat your own children. Oh, and guess what happens in 2 Kings? They do that. Because the, God's saying, The people are going to get to such a state of mind and heart that they would rather eat their own kids than repent. What kind of culture do we live in today? I don't think it's any different. We're talking about prophetic responsibility today. But Leviticus 26 says, if you humble your uncircumcised heart, If you take that heart and you turn it and you say, I have done wrong, I accept my punishment. It actually says those words, you, or Israel in this case, have to accept the punishment that God has put on you and then you can turn towards him. And what's it say? God is gonna remember the covenant because he is faithful. He's a God that remembers. He's a God that hears Israel. Amen. So let's just do a little bit of a recap. God has redeemed and delivered his people. He's brought them out and he owns them with the intention of bringing them into relationship. Can I get an amen? Now let's kind of move, let's keep moving forward a little bit. I I like to think about this kind of sermon as it's a history of the covenant. It's a history of God's plan. And, And we finally arrive to that great King David And he wants to prepare the building for God's house. But God tells him no. But he still gets everything set in order anyways. You know, we call it Solomon's temple. But who got the plan? Who got the blueprint? David. Who pretty much got everything ready? The the priests, the singers, the workers, the materials. He even uh, made some treaties with some other kings to bring in materials that Israel didn't have. Who did all of that? because he wasn't concerned about the credit. He's concerned about God being glorified and God having a house. What could we do for God's kingdom if we're not so concerned about who gets the spotlight? And I have been there. I've had to search my heart and say, God, I want to preach, but don't let me get the glory. Let me be decreased to my lowest so that you can be increased to your highest. Because this is about the glory of the Lord. This is not about you, and this is not about me. We have a prophetic responsibility today. And I love the wording, Brother Turner. David says, and Solomon will continue this phrasing, we want to build a house for the, it's not just for the Lord, 
Brother Bennett, it's for the name of the Lord. You read it. David wants to build a house for God's name because where his name is called, that is where he would dwell. And this is going to be a house, not a tent. Because God's not going anywhere. If obedience to the covenant is in a line, that temple was not gonna be destroyed. We know eventually it does get destroyed because of the disobedience. But what I'm trying to point to is the plan of God was this temple is permanent. This is a house. This is not a tent. I'm not moving anywhere. I am home. I am enthroned. I am in Jerusalem. I, this is the place where forever, if you, Israel, are obedient, this forever will be a place of access to my presence. God enthroned in an earthly throne. First Kings chapter eight, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It actually houses the, the longest prayer in scripture. This is the dedication of the temple where they bring the Ark of the Covenant in and the glory of the Lord fills the house just like it did in the tabernacle and of course just like it will in the upper room in Acts two. The glory of God will fill that house and, and we look at the temple. There's imagery all over of the Pentateuch. What are the decorations inside the temple and the tabernacle for that matter? You got trees, you got fruit, you have cherubim, and you have to go to the middle to get to the good spot. It's all reminiscent of the Garden of Eden and, and God's, God's, at that point, that pure relationship between God and humanity. Why is Solomon uh, and, well, through, through the Lord's instructions. Why is Solomon building this and trying to get us to see this? Because this was, was a little Eden. This is, this is where God could have access with his people, but there's a process. We know that through the blood. You gotta go through the labor. You gotta go through the holy place and then get to the most holy place. All the, but the point is that God had a, had a desire. He had a plan for us to get back into his presence because that's what this is about. I loved, I was teaching this to my Kings and Chronicles class and I asked uh, one student, I said, hey, what do you think about the temple? And he said, oh, it's pretty cool. Somebody should rebuild it. And I said, hopefully not you. <laughs> so that's the Antichrist for those of you that don't know. Okay. So here we are at the temple and Solomon kneels down and he's be going to begin to pray and you, you, you just read it. It's God's faithfulness all over the place. He says, you've brought us out of Egypt now that was how many years ago? That was 400 some years ago. But his promises is still carrying on. And look at, look at what he says in verse 20. We're in uh, 1 Kings 8, 20. And the Lord hath performed his word that he spake, kind of like God's faithful. And I am risen up in the room, the, the throne of David my father, and sit upon the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and have built a house for the name of of the Lord God of Israel. You know, partially, and there's so many things we can't talk about. I'm so sorry for making this so theologically compact here. But that's the Davidic covenant. That's God's plan for that messianic link to go forward into the future. And look at what he says in verse 21. And I have set there a place for the ark, God's throne on earth, wherewith is, or wherein is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers, when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, that history of the covenant, that history of God's plan. 
he begins to pray and, and, and seek the Lord, and he, he says things like this, since God's name is here, therefore his presence will be here. He says, Lord, please hear us when we pray at this location. Be attentive to this house. And I'm just, there's a few things I just hope we're, we're seeing through here that God is a God who hears. God is a God, Solomon is praying that God be a God that responds. Hear the prayers prayed toward this place. Let's look at verse 33. We're just gonna look at a few verses. When thy people Israel be smitten down, Solomon starts going into scenarios. If thy people Israel be smitten down before the enemy because they've sinned against thee. Now, what does Solomon know? He knows what Moses said. If Israel sins, God's gonna send armies in. And what is Solomon praying here? He's praying what Moses said. If the people are smitten down because of the sin and shall turn again to thee and confess thy name and pray. Verse 34, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy people. Sounds like Leviticus. It sounds like God's covenant mercy. It sounds like God's plan of redemption. Let's look at verse 35. Solomon continues to pray. When the heaven is shut up and there is no rain. Somebody say no rain. Because they have sinned against thee. Now, what does that sound like? Well, it sounds like Deuteronomy again. If you sin, I'll shut the heavens up. And okay, now they couldn't just go down to Kroger or Costco and buy their groceries, right? No rain means no food, means starvation, means you die. So this issue of rain is not like you and I like, oh man, it's raining outside, I'm gonna get wet. This is life or death situations. No rain because they've sinned against thee. But if they pray toward this place and confess thy name, there's that issue of the name again. There's that issue of that covenant name again. And turn from their sin because you can't confess the name and just keep sinning. You can't acknowledge his lordship and just continue down the path of breaking covenant. So what is Solomon praying? God, if we align ourselves with your name, we align ourselves with the covenant, bring blessing back to us. Bring, bring these blessings. Take away these curses. You read it. Solomon prays and it's, everything is looking forward and, uh, to the rest of Scripture. He even says things like this. We won't read this one necessarily verbatim, but, but Solomon says, God, if we pray and you don't just send an army and this time we get carried away. Things get so bad that we're not just, we're not just attacked, but we get removed from this place of covenant because if you keep breaking covenant, you don't get the God of the covenant, you don't get the promised land, the land of the covenant, all these things will get removed. Now that happens, doesn't it? Because the Babylonians come in. But look at what Solomon prays. He says, but if we turn our eyes towards this house and we pray, bring us back. So why do you think Daniel opened his windows three times a day and set his face towards Jerusalem? Because he knew about the faithfulness of God. 
He knew that there were some promises way set hundreds of years ago that if we acknowledge our sin and we confess the name, then we're gonna get back to the name. We're gonna get back to the house of the name. We're gonna get back to the God of the covenant. So Daniel is gonna pray and seek that and and you can read it in Daniel 9 and 10. God acknowledges Daniel and he says, that's gonna happen. Let me tell you some more. He concludes, Solomon concludes with more prayer and sacrifices and he, he charges the people. So, so let's recap this little section. What kinds of things is Solomon praying? He's praying deep, rich elements of the covenant. His prayers are steeped in, in, in the theology of Moses and, and the word of God. And then God is actually going to meet Solomon. Let's take a look at 2 Chronicles 7.1. Are we doing okay? Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, somebody say the fire. The fire came down from heaven, just like Leviticus, and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Brother Turner, I don't think that was an accident. I, I, I don't think this is something where they just thought, well, this is cool that God showed up. What are we seeing here? We're seeing Solomon has aligned himself what was spoken by God's word earlier, and it's the same God. The same God in Leviticus, everybody, is the same God in 1 Kings at the temple. It's the same God of the tabernacle is the same God of the temple. This is God's blessing coming upon the people saying, I approve of this. You are my people and I am your God. And verse three says, and all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house and they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and they worshiped and praised the Lord saying, for he is good and his mercy endureth forever. We're talking about a faithful covenant God today. We're talking about a God that hears. We're talking about a God that shows up. The same God. Second Chronicles, let's go back to our text because Solomon will go to sleep and the same response in Leviticus where the God comes down and the people fall on their faces. We see this here at the temple dedication and Solomon will, will go to sleep and the Lord will appear to him. And, and Yahweh will say things like this. Now, I want you to identify as many covenant concepts as you can. God says to Solomon, if I shut up the heaven that there be no rain, somebody say no rain, or if I command locusts to devour the land, well that sounds like Egypt, or I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear and I will act. I will forgive their sin, and again, act. I will heal their land. Why take so much time to build up to this? Because that verse to me is so beautiful, but we need to not just read it in isolation. 
this, these couple verses are just rooted in God's covenant faithfulness. But you have to seek his face. You have to seek the covenant. You have to seek obedience. You have to turn from your wicked ways. All these things that Moses said, you know what will then happen? Well, what else did Moses say? Then I will forgive and I will heal and I'll bring you back. This, okay, we're, we're talking about God's covenant faithfulness here. But how many know that just as Brother Turner said, even in his goodness, we're not. And we don't have time to walk through all of the sin and, and the book of Judges and, and later on in First and Second Kings and all these, these sinful actions that Israel and then uh, later when the kingdom is split, Israel and Judah will participate in such wicked things that there are famines and that there is invading armies and there are even circumstances where there is no rain. This is actually the context of 1 Kings 17. The, it, the, the kingdom of Israel has split to where you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and we're gonna focus on the northern kingdom right now because there's this man named Elijah. And Elijah steps on the scene, and the first thing that he says that we know of in Scripture is, it's not going to rain should they have been surprised, Brother Brown? No, because this is something that was promised. It's not going to rain. Because you have been following the house of Ahab and you have been following Baal and you have been doing all of these wicked things. So I'm gonna teach you a lesson. I'm going to be faithful to what I said because you are not being faithful in your responsibilities. So if we go to 1 Kings 18, the famous chapter, right? The, the Mount Carmel challenge. The, the Bible says that the famine, there's no rain. The famine is sore. It's severe. In verse 18, Ahab, Elijah is talking, Ahab, you, ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send and gather to me, Elijah says, all Israel unto Mount Carmel, brother Joel, Oh, and bring the 450 prophets of Baal as well. Okay, now what's the, what's the situation, Brother Turner? There's no rain, and they're supposed to go to Mount Carmel. Why? Because Baal is the storm god. Baal is the god of fertility. In the worship of Baal is mixed up so much sexuality and so much evil, uh, perverse forms of worship that would appeal to their flesh. If you're worshiping to appease your flesh, there might be a problem. But Baal's the storm god. So, so God says, you are worshiping a god that is supposed to be the god of the rain. Well, I'll show you how powerful he is. But what about... What about Mount Carmel? If you read ancient Assyrian and Egyptian historical records, they actually depict Mount Carmel as the Mount of Baal, a place where his tabernacle would be, a place where the, you know, when Moses came to the burning bush, take off your sandals for this is holy ground. Mount Carmel was that, but for Baal. That was the holy ground of Baal. So what do we see here? It's the Egyptian gods all over again. It's a false God in his home territory. And Yahweh is saying, I'll show you who the true God is. Oh, and bring your false prophets along too because we're gonna need them. 
It doesn't matter if it's Ra, the sun god, or Pharaoh, or Baal. Yahweh is gonna show himself to be the only living God. And we know this story. They're on the mountain. And we wanna pay attention to Elijah here. Because there's a challenge. If Baal is God, then serve him. But if Yahweh is God, then serve Yahweh. Why are you halting or limping between two opinions? You gotta make a decision. Because this is not what Elijah is doing. It's not just intellectual persuasion. It's a challenge of the heart. It's a challenge to reach into the heart of the hearers to say you have to do something. You have to take action. Because Yahweh is not an idea to ponder. But he is a king to submit to. The challenge goes forth. And young minister, there are some things worth challenging. There are some things worth stepping out and pointing your finger at and saying, you need to make a choice. Verse 24, Elijah says, let's choose a sacrifice. Call ye on the, oh, the name of your gods. And I will call on the name of the Lord. And what was going to be like the proof of who is gonna be the right God. Oh, fire. Him that answereth by fire. Somebody say fire. Him that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Where the name of a deity is called, that's where they were supposed to dwell. But Baal is not a God that hears. Baal is not a God that acts. He's not a God that arrives, but those prophets are gonna try their hardest, aren't they? We know the story, right? This is a very familiar, they, they get up and they're, they're, they're dancing around their altar and they're crying out to their God, Brother Galleon, and they, they begin to even start cutting themselves to where it says the blood is, is gushing out. And at one point, they, they even get on top of their altar and they start, they do this for hours as the sensationalism just climbs and climbs. It's growing with each Hour. I pray that our worship and what we are doing for Yahweh, the manipulation, the coercion, the, 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 the sensationalism doesn't match what pagans are doing to their God. Elijah's actions we're gonna see because he's going to step up and his actions are just steeped in covenant history because he's gonna stop and he's gonna mock them, right? We know this and, and then eventually they get so tired out and worn out, he's like, okay, now it's my turn. And verse 30, Elijah said unto the people, come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Young minister, there are some things worth repairing. Think of all of the altars in Israel's history. And Abraham built an altar to the name of the Lord. And Isaac built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. And, and Jacob erected that pillar and anointed oil over it and called upon the name of the Lord. David, at that temple site before the temple he's even built, builds an altar unto the Lord. And Elijah is going to repair something that should have been used and something that should have been, been uh, to an altar to glorify the Lord. 
He's repairing something that was old. And I love the way that R.C. Sproul said it. I'm not into novelty. I don't need something new. I don't need some new doctrines. I don't, now maybe the methods or, you know, maybe how we do certain things might change a little bit, but I'm talking about, let's just get back to the word. Let's just get back to the covenant. Let's just get back to preaching. Let's just get back to singing. Let's not worry about what the world is doing. I don't care how Baal worshipers are doing their altar sacrifices. I want to get back to what the word says. There are some things worth rebuilding. It doesn't matter how popular and powerful Baalism is within the culture. We need to rebuild some things. And it says that Elijah took 12 stones. Now why is that odd? Because the kingdom is split. You have 10 in the north, 10 tribes in the north, and two in the south. But I don't think, Brother Kilman, that was God's intention. God's covenant promises was not just to one tribe or to 10 tribes. It was to Abraham, his descendants, all 12, the unity of the tribes. So Elijah's saying, this is what we should be. And he builds that altar with all 12 stones. God is still faithful. And then it says he built this altar in the name of the Lord dedicated to the Lord of the, co- of the covenant. Young minister, there are some things still worth consecrating. There are still some things worth dedicating back to the Lord. There are still some things, maybe, maybe we gotta do a little work and rebuild it, but it's still the Lord's. It's still the Lord's. And then he starts pouring all this water Now, wait a second, they're in a drought. Well, Mount Carmel is right next to the Mediterranean Sea, so I don't know if that's where the water came from or not, but they start dousing, and the trench is full, and there's so much water. Now, why is that? Because there's gonna be no trickery involved here. There's gonna be no manipulation of, of, of God's presence moving Ladies and gentlemen, if, if, if we're trying to manipulate God's presence to come into the place, help us, Lord. Because if we just get up and we try to do our own little thing, okay, the fire's not gonna fall. The fire's not gonna fall. It didn't fall that way in Leviticus. It didn't fall that way in, in, in the, at the temple. It's not gonna fall that way in Acts chapter two either. It's still the same God, it's still the same fire, it's still the same obedience. So there's no trickery, there's no manipulation. Let's look at verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. So Elijah is about to perform a sacrifice that is taking place at the same time where? Way back in the temple where they should have been. That temple, that place of access, that, that, that place where God was to be with his people. And Elijah times it, and, and he is going to give this prayer and this offering to the Lord at the same time. And Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. How many of you have heard that phrase before? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob. I am the God of the covenant. And Elijah is praying this. Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, not Baal. And I am thy servant that I have done all these things at, 
Oh, at thy word? Not at what Elijah was just coming up with. Not, not he, he wasn't trying to imitate Baal's prophets to, for something to happen. He was doing all of this at, at what? At God's, at God's word? 37, hear me, O Lord, hear me. God is a God that hears. Hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. So I know I have walked so slowly through this and and I hope no one is falling asleep too badly, but just as Moses prayed, Solomon prayed. And just as those two prayed, Elijah is going to look back at this history of the covenant and his prayer will be so connected to these prayers of the people that have come before him. Okay, I'm just gonna pause and say this. Elijah did not have to rely on sensationalism. He did not have to rely on, on, on all these, uh, uh, of these false prophets and imitating the false prophets. Why, Brother Dibble? Because he knew God's character and he knew God's word. That's all Elijah needed in this moment was his knowledge of who the Lord is and what the Lord likes to do. The Lord likes to bring covenant and mercy and blessing, but there has to be that turning of the heart like we saw in the Pentateuch and in Solomon. Verse 38. Then fire of the Lord fell. Somebody say fire. And consumed, there's that word consumed again. We've seen this two times before. And consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. There's no trickery here. There's no manipulating of God's presence here. It's just a faithful prophet calling upon the word of the Lord and that God showed up because he's a faithful God. And the people saw it and they fell on their faces. And they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. The same God of Leviticus, the same God at the temple is the same God here in this situation. It's the same fire. It's the same faithfulness. It's the same word. If the music could come, your prophetic responsibility, what is it? Your prophetic responsibility. I just felt this from the Lord, Brother Galleon, that, that as ministers, as preachers, as, as whatever role God has placed you into, you have a responsibility, I have a responsibility. What is that? Preach the word. It's too simple. No, preach the word. But it doesn't end there. You gotta preach with a challenge at the end of that. You gotta preach to get people to a place where they can take action on what the word of God says. Why do you halt between two opinions? If Baal is God, then serve him. But if Yahweh is the true God, then don't just acknowledge it in your mind. There's gotta be a change of the heart. You know, this will take the pressure off you and I because I don't have to compare myself to somebody else. I don't have to imitate somebody else. I don't have to try to get up here and be a showman. 
I would fail your homiletics class with this message, I feel like, Brother Gallon. This is just a lot of stuff going all the way through. But I don't have to be a showman. I don't have to get up and dance on the altar and cut myself and do things that other people are doing to worship their gods because I have something greater. And any challenge that I can give you, any challenge that these other wonderful ministers could give you, it's not gonna get you to the place that you need to be in the Lord. That's why we need to rely on his word. I don't have to outdo the other prophets. And Brother Kilman, I'm just gonna echo Brother Mooney here. He preached a message about when you come down from the mountain and there's a golden calf in the camp, you better have something to say. But I'm gonna continue that and say, when you get on the mountain and there's some Baalism going on, you better have something to say. Because if you're not aligned with the word, anything you say, anything just from your human will is not gonna impact those Baal worshipers. It's not gonna impact... What are you going to say to people to get them out of Baalism? Singer, what are you going to sing? Musician, what are you going to play? Preacher, what are you going to preach? Because we can't expect to just get up in this pulpit and just give, just give a little speech, just give a little, give a little showmanship, excuse me, and expect there to be change. But you know, the story doesn't end with the fire. Yes, the fire is wonderful and we preach about the fire, but there was something that they needed. They needed the rain. Brother Turner, the rain hasn't fallen yet. Why? Okay. Put up 2 Chronicles 7:14 again. What I want to show you is that this story is a direct image of that verse. Because this is Israel. God's people called by his name. And they humble themselves. They fall on their face. He is the Lord. But look at what it says there. They shall, they have to seek my face, but then they have to do something else. They have to turn from their wicked ways. Okay, young minister, there are some things worth destroying. And Elijah is going to turn and look at those false prophets and say, do not let one of them escape. Because the rain has not fallen yet. But if you want to show that you actually have a change of heart and you're actually going to follow the will of the Lord. Now we know what happens later. We know that because we, we can read the whole Bible. But in this moment, on this mountain, there was a challenge that was set forth. And he said, if you want the rain to come, you have to destroy some things. So they took those wicked prophets that had been leading them in such perversity away from the Lord and they destroyed every single one of them. And, and would you know it, God is faithful because the rain comes. The blessing of the covenant returns. I'm talking about our responsibility as ministers because if we are not submitted to the word, why are we doing this? What, what's the purpose? I, I, I felt this in prayer too, that some of you, and I, we've been there, Brother Turner, 
Some of us, uh, we've been so weary in Bible college with all of these trials, all these things coming upon you. But I just want to encourage you today that he's faithful. And this right here is what you need. We can't make revival happen. We, We can't make people make a decision but we have a faithful God that hears and he responds. I remember when I was an IBC student, I remember uh, there was a a summer where I stayed uh, over the summer and helped out a little bit. And, and I remember there, this was down in the old chapel, Brother Galleon, and, and the, it was like midnight. There's nobody here. It's just a couple of the maintenance guys. And, and I remember being in that chapel and I remember, because I, I didn't feel called, I didn't come to IBC. I mean, you make fun of me sometimes. I sat in your office my first semester and said, I'll be here for a year, and then I'm gonna go back to Minnesota. But I started getting this call. I started, I started feeling this challenge from the Lord. And I remember that particular night wrestling with that call and asking, God, what do you want from me? What do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? Because I don't know if I'm strong enough to do it. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm smart enough for it. I don't think I can do this. And you can't. But you know what we have? Because when we're weak, that's when we are at our strongest. Because we have a faithful Lord. So whether you need to obey this, or whether you need to submit to that and preach it, I'm done, this is my challenge. Let's resubmit ourselves to the preaching of the word, to the singing of the truths of the word. It's a burden to be here. It's weighty to be here. I know it. All these teachers, we we know what this is like. But when you get on that mountain and you start preaching, thus saith the Lord, and you see the fire fall, and it's, it's pure, it's, it's, it's genuine works of the Lord, and then the rain falls. That's why we minister. Because we're servants of the kingdom. We're not too busy to be condescending to that lowly person. We're, we're not too busy for that person. We are ministers of the word. So I would just ask us to stand. That's what I had felt, those two groups of people, those of you that are so weary. Just rely on his faithfulness. And there's other people that you need to resubmit yourself to this word right here. So when you get up to preach, you're not a showman. You don't need to get, can I just say a couple things? You don't have to get up and have the whole congregation scream Jesus at the top of their lungs. You can just preach the word. 
The fire can fall. The rain can fall. Because it's not about you and I. It's about the glory of the Lord. Amen. Jesus, Lord, help us, oh God, to be submitted to your word. Let your word guide us when we speak. Let your word guide us when we sing. Let your word guide us when we minister, oh Lord. I pray for some Elijahs in this place to pick up the word and say, when I preach, I'm not preaching what man is is doing. I'm not imitating the world. I'm not imitating what other denominations or what other people are doing. I am just going to preach the word. If you want to come to this altar, they're open. But I just want us today to submit to the word. Oh, Lord, let us feel the weight of your word. Let us feel the burden of the word. We could try to hide it. We could try to push it down. But Jeremiah said the word was in me like a burning fire. Don't stop preaching the word. Don't stop singing the word. Don't stop playing.